I'm a highly collaborative designer and I like to work in teams and stuff and all the other tools enforce the designer behavior that I hate the most, which are the designers that are just think that they can fix everything themselves. So they go to a corner, then they design in a silo, then they come back with like, hey, this is my masterpiece. Welcome back to another episode of the Designers of M podcast. Last time we had David Bullock talking about his career going from illustration to product design. And uh, this week we have something different because we don't have a Brit anymore. We have a Brazilian from um, Belo Horizonte, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, where he grew up and had a quote-unquote successful music career, question mark. So he studied in Brazil and then also in the US, if I'm correct. And then he went on working for different size companies in Brazil before moving to Amsterdam in 2014. So now he works at Agen in Amsterdam and his name is Pedro Marques. Welcome, Pedro. How are you? Hey there, doing good. And uh, the successful music career is a very, it's an overstatement, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's me. And yeah, the bit about the US is it's a remote course that they had like from uh, the University of San Diego. So yeah, I didn't go there to study. It was like a remote kind of course, but it was a lot of fun, actually. So, okay. um, so excited to have you on the show. You were actually recommended by James in the second episode when we asked him, who would you want on the show? He said, Go talk to Pedro because he's funny and he's a lot of interesting stories. So uh, talk to him. So I can really hope you can live up to the expectations. Oh, let's see. No, nope, no pressure. Yeah, let's see. James loved me, yeah. so yeah, that's true. <laughs> so whenever I talk to people about you, they describe you as a great designer, also as a funny guy. So first question is like, are they right? Are you? Is it? Is it? Is it trick one? Because. Do I say funny things or I am funny? Because those are very different things. Are they laughing with me or about me? I can't put my finger in it, but uh, <laughs> I think both are good. So if I can break a laugh, I think uh, it's a good uh, it's a good thing. Yes. Is it also sometimes a bit annoying to have the label? And because I hear from sometimes from people that are funny that there's this thing that ticks inside of them that at some points in time it's like, oh fuck, I have to be funny now. I have to make a joke because otherwise I'm not my own character anymore. I don't think a lot about it. And when you when I'm in a in like in a work environment, every time I and when I know people from outside of work and then we get to work on together next to each other, they go like, Oh wow, you're a different guy now. What the hell? Because yeah. I put on my I put on my game face and then uh I'm like much more serious. Because I had problems in the past because people if you like you label as like oh the the funny jokey guy, sometimes in a work situation they might not take you very seriously. And because I'm also, I'm very young, I don't look like everyone else. I don't want that also, that other burden, just bringing my professionalism down. So I try to, at work, I I joke around and stuff like that, because that's when I know James from. But when I get, actually have to get stuff done, then it's a different, it's a different story. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, you don't also have, want to have the, because sometimes people mistake someone who's easygoing for unprofessional, but it's just, it's a matter of, because I think in a team, people really value the fact that you're easygoing because it makes giving and receiving feedback with you much easier. I think if you personally, for me, I find it much easier to work with someone who you have like an easygoing click with than a manager that's always serious and then comes to you like Pedro, I have some news for you. Like, you're <laughs> immediately tearing your pants. Like, What's happening now? Oh no, yeah, I, 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 
I like I like to think that my main strength as like a, a leader or something is just this ability to just know when to be welcoming. I mean, welcome you should be all the time, but just knowing when you should you know ease things out because if you are comfortable, you make the other person comfortable. So uh, it's that balance. So if you're super stiff, they're gonna be like that. So the people tend to mirror what how you behave when interact with them. So I try to make an example out of that when I'm interacting with people. So just you know. Be genuine and curious about them and stuff like that. So yeah, I like that part. Cool. Yes. So now we switch over to something completely different. You live in Amsterdam. So what's the f- worst food you've had during your time? <laughs> worst, worst food. Oh shit. Worst food. Worst food. Oh, I'm gonna get a lot of hate for this, but the the frikandel, the frikandel special. Yes. Yeah. I, I I can see the hate in your eyes right now because most Dutch people love it, but it has a lot of like. It has this very strong pickled onion kind of thing taste that stays in your mouth for the rest of the day. So not not yeah. not my thing. Also, that's also why I never tried the herring because that's probably has the same taste. So the frikandel special is not my thing. <laughs> it's a no-no for you. No, no. It's funny because the I worked at the Twitter counter at the, the Next Web office and we had two Brazilian colleagues who just joined from, from Sao Paulo. And I think... At some point, I took them out on a Dutch cooking experience, and I took them to the local cafeteria, and we ordered basically all the snacks that were like <laughs> visible in the windows, like frikandel, croquette, kaasvlei, all of them. And they liked the frikandel a lot. So it's um, not a Brazilian thing; it's just a personal. Thing. Uh, it's a personal thing. I love my, yeah. the, my Dutch. My favorite Dutch snack, though, is I'm in between the pirebalen and also the mexicano. Mexicana is good. Yeah. Because it had a, a, a little bit of spice, right? Yeah, I love it. Because the other ones are pretty bland. Yeah. Cool. So we go over to the speed question round. So first off, iOS or Android? Visual iOS interaction Android. Cool. Can you elaborate a little bit? Yes. I f- sometimes I feel like iOS, they design things beautifully, then they try to retrofit the use case to it. And Android is the other way around. So I've, I, mic- I moved to Android two years ago or something and uh interaction wise is much better it's much clearer i just i prefer the imputing information and just interacting with the system in general is much more fluid and makes more sense uh for me than ios i think like android is kind of like windows it just makes sense there's not fancy but it just makes sense yeah i can understand maybe it also has to do with the fact that this apple is a little bit arrogant like this is we we designed the new standard, right? So yeah, and like with the new iOS that they launched this week, it just felt like I was watching the Google I/O from 2017 because they're kind of catching up, which is good. Because uh, yeah. if they can get to the interaction level of what I think about Android, but with the visual care from from Apple, then that's a winner. So that might make me move. But right now, I'm on the Android team. Android, yeah, cool. That's, I think that's a good whole topic to discuss in another podcast. <laughs> the, adv- the advantages of iOS versus Android and vice versa. So what social networks do you use and for what do you use them? Yeah, I, my favorite one is Twitter. I use Twitter incredibly a lot. And the reason why I use Twitter a lot is that Twitter is the only social network where I can mute words and topics. So yep. I can kind of like create a bit of a bubble if I'm fed up with the, a given topic. I can just like, okay. Not anymore. And I just get, I can shut the whole thing off and then look for it once in a while. Uh, I did that with Brazilian politics now because it was just 
it's important. I care about it, but it was just taking too much of my headspace. So I, I have my allowance that once a week I go, then I look for it. And then I can be more, I choose when I want to see stuff. So that's why I love Twitter. And then also LinkedIn, because I don't know, LinkedIn for a lot of a lot of my work nowadays is also doing some active hiring. So LinkedIn is quite a, it's, it's the place I'd rather go I'd rather find designers on LinkedIn than on uh, Dribble, because yeah. Yep. So uh, I'll tend to go more for that. But I think Twitter is just my my house. <laughs> yeah, I think the, what you say about Twitter is like the a lot of the hate about Twitter comes down to the fact that it's so open and you basically receive everything that everyone talks about. Yeah. But if you master muting words blocking people if necessary <laughs> then then it's a really tool that you can but you have to do it in moderation right because yeah it's so easy to get caught up in discussions and then oh this is my work day it's actually six hours on twitter now yeah exactly <laughs> exactly so i i would love to work on on some muting word functionalities on twitter because like for example when i open twitter on the weekend i couldn't give a a damn about design twitter so i rather just read anything else but then on the weekdays then yeah it's fine i want to see that so yeah i, I, I wish they invested more on in that but because that's my favorite feature about the entire platform cool so jack if you're listening this is an open solicitation <laughs> from Pedro. so maybe just get in touch hire him <laughs> yeah if you need some if you need some help i'm there so where do you prefer to work actually because i think both of us, uh, although you're a bit younger, have worked most of our professional careers in open offices. Have you worked in a cubicle or something? You have an executive office now at Adyen? Yeah, not a cubicle per se, but the, back in Brazil, I had like a, a room that was like the creatives room. And then you have another room with the developers, another room with the thing, because it was kind of like a house, the whole thing. Didn't like it that much. I tend to prefer open office, but as my career grows and now that I'm more like on a leadership managerial role and a lot of my work is talking to people when you cannot control who comes and what time they come everything becomes a bit hectic and open offices don't help so right now my favorite place to work is just in my house because <laughs> then yeah. uh, it's easier to like reschedule or say no to a meeting that could have been an email and it's just i have more control so i rather i on the office side maybe you know maybe the open office is still the best but uh, i prefer my house yeah maybe like the balance like having an open office like once one or twice a week and then the rest is work from your home yeah yeah and unless people at some point like micromanagers start finding out where you live and they're <laughs> gonna do the same as they did in the office it's like ring your doorbell it's like hey you want to go for coffee what can you imagine that would be so so weird <laughs> uh, it's like i'm joking about it now but like in a distant future i won't even be surprised at me neither to be honest like me uh, neither okay next one favorite design tool figma 100 percent. yes hashtag team figma <laughs> Do you share the same um, reasons for this as as Thomas previously mentioned, like the collaboration part and the fact that you like open up basically your design structure in the office, like within a snap? Yeah, and because I'm a very I'm a highly collaborative designer, and I like to work in teams and stuff. And all the other tools enforce the designer behavior that I hate the most, which are the designers that are just think that they 
can fix everything themselves. So they go to a corner, then they design in a silo, then they come back with like, hey, this is my masterpiece. So I think all the other design tools enforce that type of behavior. And sure. when in Figma, you're doing stuff in the open and it's more like, you kind of feel like you're in the same room with people and everyone is working on their own thing, but it's quite easy to just be like, oh, hey, you did something cool. I can borrow from that. And then it just increases consistency across the platform. It's just like gets you closer to your coworkers. So I tend to love it for that. And also the, way, the fact that it kind of, it doesn't make you work on a Mac or make you work on this or make you work on that. So it just opens up for a lot of the opportunities for a lot of people that don't have access to like a high-end Mac to run Sketch uh, or something like that. It just brings quality software to the web which for free and in a, to an extent. Which for me is a it's a it's a winner and it goes w very well with my personal beliefs on software and accessibility to them to underrepresented groups and people that, that wouldn't otherwise uh, afford these kind of things. Yeah, couldn't agree more. James, I think, has a different opinion, but who cares about him, right? Yeah, he's British. Exactly. <laughs> so on the same topic, a little bit like if you're designing, how many monitors do you use, and has this changed over time? Definitely changed over time. I was like the flight control designer in the past so i had two big monitors one is standing because i could like code or have some big thing on the side and another huge one and my and my 16 uh, 15 inch laptop nowadays i'm extremely happy if i just have my 13 inch i can get my work done in the same way so i would say only one monitor if it's like my 13 inch or another uh, nicer monitor that's that's bigger and I have more space, but definitely just one. Even if I connect the laptop on the computer, I tend to not use the laptop screen. So just one. Yeah, one screen. One screen to rule them all. Yes. Another topic is music when designing. What kind of music do you listen to when designing? Loud, fast, and aggressive. Like Really? Yes. When people, I, when people like ask this thing and I show them, we go like, "What the hell? How can you concentrate with that?" I, I like like there's a, a specific band that I, I listen to a lot, and uh, it's just like extremely loud and noisy. It kind of becomes white noise in a way because I, I, I don't know. It's just I can only concentrate on the design because the rest is the music. The music took over, so I like listening to that and just makes me kind of keep banging my head. So when I'm in an open office, people usually look at me like, who is that weirdo just like head banging? <laughs> yeah, so I'm that guy. <laughs> cool. And this is, does this change when you do other things? 100%. If I have to like sit down and really concentrate and get stuff done, I will put the loud stuff, but if it's designing, but if I'm like, I don't know, I'm working on performance evaluation, writing a document or I don't know, working on a spreadsheet or something, and I'll definitely listen to something more chill that I can just calm down because I think the other one forces my instincts to work and that's usually not great when you're dealing with people. So it's better to sit down and think about it. So I'll put, I don't know, some Bonnie Vare or something and just chill. Yeah. So that would be my, my thoughtful work kind thoughtful of playlist. Yeah. <laughs> I talked to James about it and he mentioned he has music for his moods. But for me, I have the same as what you have. Music also determines my mood. So yeah. if I put on this loud, aggressive music, it kind of enforces me to like, oh, I need to be productive now. I need to get some shit out. It would be interesting to see what would happen if you forcefully put different kind of music on when designing. Like what if that would change anything in your pace, but also in the, like the designs you make. 
I, I think it changes. If I listen to like very calm stuff or nothing when I'm designing, I lose my focus it's extremely easy. Like if my phone vibrates with the notification or something, or if I I come and tab to look at a reference and then I, I have a Twitter tab open, I'll just fall into it. I think the it changes it changes a lot how how focused I am on getting something done. So I I don't think I would work very well with the yeah. designing with my other my thoughtful playlist. Yeah, cool. So the next question, two questions actually, are about great design. Yeah. So if you think about great design, what's the first physical product that comes to mind? I love products that get out of the way of what you're trying to do and they enable you to do things when you want, how you want to do them. So in the, with that sense, a physical product that I like a lot is the Nintendo Switch. Because it's like, if I want to play on my couch, I play on my couch. If I want to play on TV, it takes me two seconds to, to start playing on the TV. If I want to play with the controls attached, I play with the controls attached. If I want to play with a separate controller, I play with the separate controller. And me changing my experience on, on, how, on how I interact with the device doesn't change how effective it is. So I really... I literally spent one hour today talking about this. <laughs> and and because now my work now, I'm moving designing, moving to designing more towards physical devices on payment terminals. And it has a lot of similarities with the, you're not interacting with the device because, because of the device. You just want to get something done and the device is a means to an end. So you should get out of the way and should work. Should work for you and you should not work for it. So in that sense, I really like, I think that the Switch is an incredibly well-made piece of hardware and software, but the hardware itself is my favorite part of it. I want to talk about this a little bit uh, before when you, when we were discussing iOS versus Android, because you mentioned like great products go out of the way, yeah. basically. So I think the, the most, my favorite thing about iOS is that is also the thing that people hate the most is like the, the ecosystem, right? Yeah. But if you're in the ecosystem, then everything goes out of the way, right? Yeah, exactly. Like I wanna I'm walking around and I have stuff and I get a message on my on my watch and then I take my phone out and I can like reply to the same message and at some point I'm sick of typing on my phone. So I go to my I go to my laptop and I think if you give in to Apple and just say like, <laughs> Okay, shut up, take my money, I'm all over your ecosystem, that is perfect. But yeah. if you if you're a little bit out of the ecosystem, if you prefer something else, then it's fucking horrible because yeah. then it doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. I have a lot of that problem because I was in iOS for a long time, so I had a Apple Watch and blah, blah, blah. And then when I got out of, like, when I stopped using iPhone, which is the main link in the chain, I was like, holy shit, what do I do now? How do I, I don't know, send something to my laptop without AirDrop? How do people do this? So exactly, there are a lot of uh, weird things. And I think that's why... Touching again on the point that I talked about Figma, that's why I love the web because the web is a platform that's across and I know business have stuff against it, but if you want and if you have that as a principle, you can create the same kind of experiences if you rely on the web. But the, I wish more companies would do that than you could do that through open APIs and open things because yeah, I, yeah. I, I miss that about iOS and I wish Android was better at that, but uh, oh well. Maybe Google starts copying stuff now from ios and we're all back in reverse <laughs> you don't ever know hopefully yeah. so another great design but now what's the first digital product that comes to mind people might hate it but the um, windows comes to mind and bury me bury me because 
they've been involved in a, a, lot, a lot over the years. I used to hate it. That's why I moved to Mac at the beginning. But the thing we don't give Windows and Microsoft credit is that everything, when almost everything we know about computing and user interaction, we all learned it through Windows. So in that way, they shaped how a lot of things work. And if I were to take one specific product that works very well, yeah, that digital product that works very well, I think it would be like Excel on uh, like spreadsheets in general. Again, it gets out of the way. You get your stuff done. Uh, it's, it's a trend, I guess. But I, I really like this kind of stuff. But Windows in general, I think it's a has a lot of flaws, but has a lot of potential. And the size, just the size and the scale of it, and just how it how it teaches people how to interact with technology. There's a lot of potential responsibility, and I believe they do a a, a good job overall. Yeah. So I tend to I tend to like it. Yeah, and I think Windows Windows downside is that it doesn't do what Apple does, so it doesn't have this marriage between the the physical product yeah. and the software, uh, and that makes it maybe even more impressive that Windows works pretty well because they have to accommodate for a shitload of devices with a shitload of different configurations, yeah. with a shitload of different vendors and suppliers and whatnot. Exactly, and for can you imagine you're designing this kind of thing? It's it's hell. It's so many variables, but I think they do a oh. they do a very good job based on the amount of stuff that they have on their plate. So I tend to I tend to like it. So what time of day are you most productive? Late to mid afternoon. In the morning, I'm dead. I can't. I can't. I don't work in the morning at all. So in the afternoon, like about this time, like between two and six. I tend to get eight hours of work done in in the four hours in the afternoon. So I think that's more that's more me. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting because it's the exact opposite of what Thomas, James, and David said. Yeah, I'm I'm shit in the mornings. Jesus, I'm ba- I'm very bad. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Do you go to bed late or? Yeah, I think it's a bit because back in Brazil, um, I was studying. I had two jobs. And traffic is a shit is a shit show. So I would always be like two hours in a bus and get to work in the morning. And but I would also get home from university and stuff at, at like one AM or two AM. So I'm I'm kinda got used to not sleeping a lot. And when you don't sleep a lot, the the first hours after you wake up are completely useless. So I tend not to sleep quite a lot and sleep quite late. And uh, I think that's that's kinda what destroys my morning routine. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't even have one. I just wake up and do whatever I have to do and just like jump out of bed. But yeah, that's why I think I tend to sleep quite late. Who's the person that had the most influence on you as a designer? <laughs> that's a big question. I think at different times, it was different people. If I was were to look at my beginning of my career as a designer 12 years ago or something, I had this teacher in university that he was a huge influence for multiple reasons. One, he was a great designer and he really cared a lot about type. And I, I had a love for typography. I still have it. Type and layout, like for print layout. Everyone respected him a lot. And he looked like me. He was a, a, a black dude in a profession that not everyone looks like that. So I could look up to him and say like, okay, if he can do it, I can do it. And he was incredibly, incredibly helpful. And he still is. And uh, every time I have like an achievement in my career or something, I still send a message to him and like, hey, this cool. is because of you, dude. Like, if you haven't trust me at a time, I wouldn't be here. So that figure in in my life was incredibly 
helpful. So Angel, if you're listening to this, thanks again, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and awesome. I think if I move forward on the recent years, I in my previous job, it was the first time I was working in such a huge product and such a, 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 such a massive scale with politics involved and ethics involved. And I was in a very specific weird area on the ethics side that was one person that I would always go through and it was always helped me out which was Erin she was a, she's still the principal designer there and just the way that, like talking straight to me on hey this is the thing you know what to do uh you just if you need some reformation I'm going to help you but if you need someone to bounce ideas off I'll help you even after I left the job I still had like coffees with her just to like okay I want to I want to know what you think matters a lot to me. So I want to know what you think about this thing and just the way that she deals with ethics in general on the what's right or wrong and our responsibility as designers is just, uh, I learned a lot from her and I still do. And I just, yeah, I think she's a great character and I, it's still a, a huge reference for me as a designer and as a person in general, just uh, what you work on matters and you have the responsibility, so take it and own it. So yeah. I think that's something that was great for me. We both had the, the luck of, I think, working with her on the same tour. We're in the same department at, yeah. at, at Booking. I think it's it tells a lot about her that a lot of people want to bounce ideas off of her, but also trust her enough to go with like all range of problems to her. Yeah, it's not, it's not just like the design problems, but also all the ethical questions. Or, and I think that's also what it makes her so great as a as a as a person because she's the same person, I would say when you meet her outside of work and, and inside of work. Yeah. And it's just, I can't, I can't even imagine the amount of weight that adds to your back. Cause when this, this, this many people trust you on this very heavy subject, I can, I can imagine how you feel uh, responsible and for, for this kind of thing. So it's like, she's just a great, she's great. Yeah. She's, she's like mama, awesome. it's like mama duck and her, all her little ducklets. Right? Yeah. It's just like, yeah. It's just the god duck. So yeah, Erin, love Erin. I'm, um, I'm gonna try to get her on the um, on the podcast, but she was she was thinking about it. Yeah, I think those are the the two people that had the most influence. I don't have like a design idol or some print designer somewhere that does squares that I love or something. I think it's just more. I'm I'm very pragmatic. I want things to work. I want them to work in a way that doesn't hurt anyone else. And I think as, design, as designers, we have a lot of influence on that. So these two people just taught me that design is much more than the pixels on the screen or the ink on the paper. It's just how people interact and how much responsibility you have there as a designer. Yes. Awesome words. So now we go back a little bit in your history. Did I actually pronounce Belo Horizonte right or not? Eight out of ten. Uh, that was good. Was good. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna use this eight out of ten from Pedro. <laughs> so when I when I Google is Belo Horizonte and then the first recommendations from Google are actually is Belo Horizonte safe? That's the first one. So I thought that well let's ask the ask the expert is it safe? Compared to Brazilian standards, yes, it's a f incredibly great city. If you to be it has a lot of similarities with Amsterdam and maybe that's why I like it here. The, of course, like any other city in Brazil, there are areas in, I mean, the entire country isn't that safe, but the, there are places that are not that safe just because of the way the inequality works and things like that. But overall, I think it's a quite safe city and quite a nice place to be in. But it's, it's, it's just, it's huge. I cannot gen generalize. I think 
the bigger area like Belorizonte in the smaller cities that make the the district. I think it's like seven million people or eight million people or something. So that's like yeah. almost half the Netherlands in one city. So exactly, <laughs> it's kind of hard to generalize. But I tend to I tend to think compared to the rest of the country, it's quite safe. Yeah, and how was it up? How was it growing up there? Did that shape you in a way that you um, are now as a person as a designer? A lot. I'm from one of the satellite cities. So if there are people from Belo Horizonte listening to this, they'll be like, you're not from there. You're from Contaging. It's like one of the satellite cities that make the district. Okay. And But I did, I did live in the main city for a long time as well. Growing up, I think the main thing was that I come from a very poor uh, background. So kind of like a, a favela thing. But the, the images people have on, on their heads when they talk about favelas is like the Rio de Janeiro, the, the movie paints and stuff like that. But there are different configurations of favelas across the country. So it's just like a very poor area and so on. So I never had access to things. And to, when I started working as a designer, I would go to the place where I was a, like an assistant teacher kind of thing. I would work on their computers because I never had access to it at home and things like that. I think this shapes a lot in my on the way I work on what I think about technology in general of how things are accessible to people and access and just teaching and sharing knowledge in general. I think just this sense of community that this thing, this area, this, this community is foster of the government's not going to help you. Police is not going to help. It's just going to make it worse. And the only people that can help you are your neighbors. And so I think that's, that shaped a lot who I am as a designer and how, how I think about things. When I talk about like my childhood and about how I grew up, I think James mentioned it also last week. For me, it was normal that there was a computer in the house. Yeah. Like David Bullock mentioned that his, his dad was a graphic designer. His dad had a Mac in the house. We had computer and internet. And that was just something you take for granted, right? Yeah. I mean, you said you have to go somewhere else for computers. So you value these things way more than probably I would. Yeah. How does this, how does this change your relationship to, to a job and uh, design as a passion? Is it still something you really, really like? Or is it also... This has changed because of this situation. I, don't get me wrong. I really like design. I think, like I said, I think it's a very plays a very important role in society, and we can have a huge influence and so on. But is it's a job, and the reason why I, I I started working as a designer, like freelancing, doing business cards and this kind of stuff, I was fourteen years old, and because I knew how to use a computer, because uh, I had access, like in a. The, it's like a, in a school kind of thing. I knew how to use it. And I, a, a guy told me how to use CorelDRAW and I could make stuff. I was like, okay, I can make money with this. And I've been doing it ever since. So my first computer I bought from doing doing graphic design and I was 15 years old. It was the first computer in the house. It was like one of the first times my, my parents used the computer. I was already 15, 16. So I think ever since, it's a job. I do it. I care a lot about it, but it's a job. It, pay my, it pays my bills. I do it well. And it's like any other job is an exchange of from of your time to the, the company wants something from it. So I wouldn't say there's like a like a, a passion. I love design. I do it on the weekends and blah, blah, blah. No, I, I don't think so. So this, the fact that literally design was, is, was what put food on the table of my house when I was young just makes me value it a lot. And as a job, I can do, but it's a job. Yeah. And when you mentioned the most influential people in your life, you mentioned 
your teacher in yeah. your design school. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned that he was also a role model for you because there were not a lot of people like you. Yeah. And I assume that's people of color yeah. or people of black people in, in that class. So in design in general, you would think that Brazil is a quite diverse country, but actually it's, it is like on the people side and the, what makes the country, the country is very diverse. But when you go to areas in technology or design, it's usually taken by the wealthier middle class that is mostly white. So in my class, I was probably, one, there was like one or two of me from all the teachers that we had in all in all the time in the design school and everything. Just one guy was, uh, was, a, was a person of color, was one black teacher. And throughout my career and the jobs that I had, I can literally count in one hand in 12 years the amount of black people I work with, of people that just look like me, like brown, indigenous people. So I literally can count it in one hand. And that's, it's insane. So yeah, that's, it does shape how you see things and everything. So I, in a way, kind of why I try to move towards like a leadership position, because I want someone to also see that and say like, oh, hey, I can do that. And you I, want to be the, the teacher that, or you want to be that same person that your teacher was. If if someone years from now says something remotely similar to that I said about me, that I can die happy because then it's not about work anymore. It's not about design. It's, it's just about enabling people to do things and people. And see, when I see other people like me thrive, it's like, yes. I, it shows that like, okay, I'm finding a good fight. I can do this too. Like Dania, she's a design leader booking and she fucking kicks ass. She's awesome. And yeah. I see, and when I see people like me, I'm like, okay, fuck yes, let's do it. And uh, I want to be part of that group. So yeah. it's just- I think you're, you're on a great way of getting there actually. Hopefully, hopefully yeah. I try. <laughs> so you told me a little bit about like growing up. I think we, we, we uh, revisit the topic a little bit later on in your career. Yep. But now I have to talk about the elephant in the room. Oh my God, here it comes. Your music career. <laughs> so I think unintentionally, the first time I heard about you or talked to you, I already had this preconception like, oh, that's Pedro. He's like a famous musician from the world. <laughs> famous? Like, okay. Not famous at so, all. So get the elephant out of the room. Like, what is what was your music career like? How uh, did it start? How did it end? Like, just... no, I just I just had a bunch of bands, and a few of them it, they grew a bit more than uh, than than the rest than some other ones. And when it, it's kind of like a perspective thing, right? When I was thinking talking to people from from here from Holland or from anywhere else, and they go like, "Oh, I had this band, and we played a bunch of shows, and then we play all mm -hmm. over Brazil." And then you start to think that Brazil is freaking huge. So the fact that we were playing in different states a bunch of times, it's kind of like an European tour for a, a European band. And that's where like the famous thing came from because we were talking yeah. about this. So not famous at all, but we had, okay, like not a fan base, but people that knew us and knew our songs and stuff like that. That didn't last for too long because it's like teenager shit, but um, it, was, it was fun. I really liked it. Played a bunch of shows and I think that kind of, helped me a bit with design in general and just what I am because I find I don't I don't mind being on a stage I think I know how to behave when people are looking uh, and that definitely helped but not famous at all because I mean I had a punk rock band so I was screaming against the government and kicking things so 
not a lot of people can make a living out of that. <laughs> Good experience, right? I mean, it's like for your public speaking, it it's valuable. And I think in general, like being a musician in general, it just helps. Yeah. I think it's like good education. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. And for me now, it's an outlet. I still write songs. I have like a, almost like a, a home studio and stuff, but I do it for fun. I don't want to, I don't want it to become a job. I don't want it to become something that I, that I have to do. So I do and I want to do it. And when I do it, I'm, I'm happy. So yeah, yeah not, a, not a career at all. So when design is not your passion, like music definitely is. I would say so. Yes. Yeah. Cool. So in Brazil, up to joining a booking at Amsterdam, what happened in like the, the, the six months before joining Amsterdam that made you leave the country or that made booking be aware of you and get yeah. you to the Netherlands? It was funny because because of that teacher, one thing that he told me was like, doesn't matter how much you know, there will always be people that can learn something from it. And I still, that took me like, I was like, okay, I want to be that person. So I started writing blogs. There was a big blog in my my hometown that I started writing there about design. And then people started noticing, people started looking at it. And then I started speaking at conferences. So that kind of gets, gives you a lot of visibility. And then I spoke in conferences all over Brazil as well. And there I get to know the community on mostly in development because my thing was trying to bring UX design to a development area. So I was mostly speaking front-end front -end development conferences and stuff like that. And that I knew a lot of front-end developers. And when you start getting this kind of visibility, so people notice it and they start approaching you about things. So there was uh, this guy, he's, he was a developer. He was already a front-end developer at Booking. And oh, someone is drilling. And he was a front-end developer at Booking. And we moved we knew each other from events and then he mentioned like hey there's this position here it's very much on what you talk about and what you do which is this intersection between a design a ux designer and front-end development and so on so yeah i think that's kind of what led to this i never planned on moving at that time i wanted to but my plan was like i need to get pretty good have like a be like a, a top 10 designer in the country or whatever to then and maybe in 10 years I can find a job and move to the US because that was the dream, but not anymore. And that was the dream and stuff. So I, it was completely unexpected. I was in university. I was in my first year of university and I was like, oh shit, this is what the hell. But I just took it because you don't skip on this kind of things. But yeah, that's kind of what was like the last six months a year that led to me moving to Amsterdam. Yeah, and I was the first. I was the first experience. Have you have you been to um, Europe and Amsterdam before? No, I actually no? almost missed my interview because I need to. I need. I needed to like get a passport because I never. I didn't. I didn't even have a passport because, like I said, I didn't have the means or the money to travel even within Brazil. The only travel I did was for the conferences because then the conferences would like pay the tickets and stuff for me to go to speak there. Or through music, because then uh, a producer somewhere would just invite us to play and then we'll be on a bus for 20 hours and then we'll just go somewhere. So I never actually traveled for fun before. And I was yeah. 20 years old. So And I, I had to get a, a passport to come here and stuff like that. So moving here was a shock because I got here on December 2014 and it was freaking cold. I didn't even have like clothes for this. 
And uh, I remember clearly that the hotel that they, like the housing that they put us in the first month was very outside of the city. So I actually considered going back home a lot because I thought like, if this is it, I don't want this because it was like far away. It was cold. There was no one and nothing around. It was, yeah, it was really bad. But um, after a month, it was okay. Yeah. I think the contrast between Amsterdam in winter and Amsterdam in summer is so huge Yeah, that when you talk to people that land in the summer, it's like, oh, this is amazing. And then winter hits them and they're like, fuck. Yeah. And you have the exact opposite. Yeah. I think it was actually good because then it only got better from there. So I yeah. think if you move in the summer, it only gets worse. And if you move in the winter, it only gets better. So it just made me appreciate and like kind of know what to expect for the, for the next year. So that was, a, that was, uh, that was okay. And did you eventually move into the city more when you had to leave like the temporary apartment? Oh uh, yeah. I moved like in the heart of the West. I was like, I want to be where people are walking all day. So I literally moved in front of like a, a street market just because there yeah. were traffic, there were people, there were stuff, there was stuff happening. So I wanted people around. So I moved there. So that was, and that was great. Yeah. Yeah. And you already knew some people uh, at Booking already that probably also made it a little bit easier to to get to know the city because you have people that are familiar with it. Yeah. I knew this guy, the Eduardo that recommended me and like by name, a few other people, not in person. So most of the people I met here, but uh, there was already a connection and a little bit of like a, a group that I could insert myself into and, and not have to start completely from scratch. Yeah. Before joining booking, I worked at the next web, which, which had some nationalities, but not that much. Yeah. And before that, I think all made all, all Dutch companies, especially five or 10 years ago, were just Dutch, right? Yeah. Boterhammen with lunch, hagelslag on your sandwich, that sort of stuff. So, and then I joined Booking and then my first team was, for me, was diverse. But I can imagine diversity being a, being a black person is different because for me, diversity meant, oh, there's people from Russia, there's people from America. Yeah. But but they were still all white. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I, when I moved, it was a bit, I, I was expecting it to be less diverse, to be honest. But then my team was like two people from Turkey and people from India and Dutch. And actually, I don't think there were any Dutch people in my, my team, yeah. like for a year or something. So then I understand the different side of diversity because when in Brazil, it's, when you talk about diversity, it's like it's their sexuality, yeah. gender, and this kind of things. And in here, there's not just that because people are coming from a lot of different places. So the way they think and talk about things and that they behave is completely different. Like how direct people, uh, Dutch people are and how not direct at all Brazilians are. And that's something that you can get used to. And it's diversity in a way because just... Uh, most most Brazilians are very extroverts. And if you have a team with a bunch of extroverts, it's like they're going to kill each other or they're not going to get anything done. So <laughs> people there are more like laid back and more analytical. And they so there's also a type of diversity. So I learned a lot about other things and other cultures. And that comes with its own bias because I only knew about Russians from American movies. So I had a very weird preconception of what a Russian person was like yeah. and this kind of thing. So it opened my eyes a lot as well on that, the fact that the diversity, it's a massive thing. It's a massive subject. And it just, we cannot make it small by just saying like, oh, it's just about race. It's just about gender. It's just about the, or nationality there's also religion there's a, there's a lot of things so i learned a lot about that which was fun and I, I would never get to learn about that in brazil so 
at Booking, your teams evolved, prob- I think almost all of them evolved around machine learning. Was this something that you already did before? No, actually, no. The first the team that I, that I worked there was the company would acquire startups. And my job was to help the startups integrate and develop their product. And one of them was like a price recommendation kind of thing. And, and it was heavily data involved in machine learning. And that's what the first time I learned what the hell that was because I never heard about it before. And this is 2015. And it just evolved that I just got curious about it. And at some point, we realized that we're chasing a problem and then we just realized that the problem was not a UI problem, was just a information architecture and recommendation problem. So we started investing in the team into like, can we solve it with machine learning? And I had a, a very good manager at the time that he was a data scientist and he just like gave me the keys to the castle so I could just like poke around with a lot of data, build my own models with like data from the company, which is, this is like, it's insane. Well, very few people have this, there's a possibility to like learn about machine learning with the amount of data that Booking had at the time. So it was completely awesome. And I learned a lot and he taught me a lot. So I started getting more and more into data science. And that's also the reason why I joined my current company to help on our data products and the products that are more tied to basically problems that are data problems and that we can take from the hand of the user doing the dirty work and let them do the good work and not the, the fiddly kind of things. I just grew, it just grew into it over time. I never made a conscious decision to be like, I'm going to do this now. It just kind of happened and I'm going with it. <laughs> yeah. I think in one of your uh, talks, I think the most recent one at the AWWW awards, yeah, whatever that was. <laughs> yeah. You talk about that you hate the term artificial intelligence and you go on about like, what is intelligence yeah. and then put artificial in front of it doesn't make any sense. So for designers that are listening that, are thinking like, ah, oh, fuck, I'm a designer. Like what I have to do with like machine learning, artificial intelligence. Like what is the thing that you find most interesting as a designer about this topic? Designing from when it goes wrong, that's definitely a huge design problem because it, it will go wrong. It's a statistics thing and statistics have boundaries and there is an, an there will always be uh, errors. It's never hundred percent accurate. So designing for those, those cases, those stress cases, is incredibly awesome. And that's where design can shine a lot in a data heavy environment. Because when machine fails, it's the opportunity for it to learn. And uh, so you can serve the system on how does the system gets better through design. And also how do you ease the pain of the user because whatever they were trying to do, you went wrong. So how do you deal with that with the user side? So I think that's the biggest point that design can shine. But the one that I'm most interested about is about is control, the sense of control and trust. So how do you, if you're designing like a, a, like, like a Tesla or something, how do you build trust to the point that someone is going to let go of the wheel, the wheel of the car and let the, the car do its thing? And it's the same yeah. with any system. So how do you build that trust is my favorite kind of topic and what I've been working for the past two years. Yeah. Do you become more humble as a designer when working with, with machine learning? You have no control of what your users are going to see and when most of the time, because it's very personalized, it's very customized, and there are too many variables. So you need to learn how to design systems in a way that is very pragmatic. So it's not like, how is this thing going to look with this information? You can't design for that because there, you don't know what's going to go in there most of the time. 
um, but you still have to design for it. And that just makes you more, much more collaborative because you, in order to understand it, to design for it, you have to understand how it works. So you're going to work with data scientists and you're going to go from being the awesome designer in a room to being probably not the smartest one in the room in regards to that topic. And you have to be like, put your head down and just listen and understand. Because after, when you understand, then you can see the role that design can play and then you can bring more stuff to the table. So it's a bigger, it's a bit of a process. Yeah. Makes you more powerful in the end, right? Yeah. If you, if you, if you accept this. It makes me think about, Toma mentioned something in the first episode about, because I was asking him like, what's next in your career? And he said, well, I don't plan my career because my career is a consequence of the coincidence that happened. Yeah. Like he mentioned his his most recent job was because of his neighbor worked at a company and then he just bought a new house and, and met with her. And I think what you were saying is also your career has been not really planned, right? <laughs> I mean, every time I, every time I planned something and went wrong, every time I, I just said like, okay, let's just flow with it. Then it worked. <laughs> so is this, uh, like, has this changed the way that you approach like your professional career? Uh, like more like, okay. The whole thing of, Frustration is expectation uh, minus reality, and if yeah. you expect if you expect too much, then you're gonna be underwhelmed. So it's like, yeah, I don't plan too much. I was like, okay, let's see what comes next. Am I the machine learning guy now, and that's what I'm gonna do for the rest of my career? Okay, fine, let's do it. And if I find a problem that's interesting enough to work on, I'll do it. But I, I don't plan too much. I just learn a bunch of things along the way, and I see where I can apply them see where the wind takes me yeah we're in the netherlands so there's a lot of wind yes there's there's, there's there is there's no lack of wind do you want to stay for the rest of your life in amsterdam or at some point you want to go back to brazil is that something that you think about yeah going back to brazil it's a no no so far so <laughs> i don't think i would do that and amsterdam is very easy it's like it's very hard to not like it here so like i we, we bought a house and all those things. And so, and my wife also loves here. She has a very good job here as well. So I see no reason to move. So having planned around that, I do miss the mountains though, a lot, but you know, you can get a car and drive two hours into Germany and then there are mountains again. So yeah. most of the problems I can kind of get away, get, get around them. So yeah, not a lot of plans, but I, I would say that for the foreseeable future, this is Tausch. <laughs> yeah. So this is yeah. home for the, for the for the time and is and is your dutch also improving as much as your uh, as your design career over here in a slower pace <laughs> but I, I, it's getting better i think now i can have a lot of interactions i'm putting a bit more effort on it i never put a lot of effort in it but now i was like okay i'm staying we want to i want to grow my family here and stuff like that so i'm i better i better learn the ropes and be okay with it. So I'm getting better at it. I can hold a small conversation when I have to, but the, definitely not good. I would rate my Dutch as good as my JavaScript. <laughs> perfect. Uh, it's perfect. It's it's really perfect. So I think we've talked about the, your career, your fantastic music career and, and, and how you grew up. There's one, one last thing I want to talk to you about before going to the to the final questions. I feel that this year, when it comes to structural racism, yeah. this year, it feels different this year in the sense that as a white person, because we've talked, I've talked to a lot of people about it, like you should talk about this topic on your podcast. I don't feel that my opinion as a white male, it's important, 
but I don't want to give my voice a stage right now. Yeah. You know what I feel? Yeah. And and now for the first time in 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 years, I I feel the sense of need to to do something about it. One of which which is invite more people onto the podcast that that can actually talk about it and share something. What's the advice for people that you have like on both sides of the spectrum? For people like me is just keep doing what you're doing. Uh, you shouldn't change how you're behaving, who you are to fit the specific narrative. So just keep doing what you're doing. And it's not your fault. I think that's that's it, basically. It's not your fault. Just do what you do, what you want to do. And, and let's hope the rest is going to be fixed soon. If you can do and you want to do something about it, do it. But if you feel like you don't want to, because no one no one's obliged to do with anything, just it, we got your back. And yeah. for everyone else, the main privilege that you have is you're learning it now through other people's experiences to documentaries and things. So you're having the privilege to seek for it. We never had that. Uh, we learned it on being on the receiving end of it. And I don't wish that for anyone. So use that wisely and do like, like you're doing now. Give other people space and voice to talk about it. And the first thing, as soon as you're comfortable with someone, just ask them like, please, if I do something, give me feedback. Because if you say that, then they will be open to do so. If you don't, we never know who is open for, for listening and make sure that people know that you're there and just give them space and give them your ears and give them your spot to, like on the, on the stage. And I think that's the, the best you can do. Great. I'll leave it at that because I think I have nothing to add there. So now we segue into the, the, the last part of this podcast, which feels a little bit weird, but we have to, I mean, it's the structure of the podcast. <laughs> so uh, we have a playlist. Yeah. What song do you want to add to that playlist? The song that you use when, or that you play when designing? Yes. Uh, Naysayer by the band called Architects. Yes. It's going to be a banger. So I wonder how it's going to play with the rest of the playlist. It's going to be fun. Yeah. This is a banger. It's going to get you. It's in two seconds in the song, you're going to be like, what the hell is happening? <laughs> cool. And then the final question is, who should we try to get on the show next time? I think I already said it, uh, but I would really try. I think Erin has one of the voices that that really could be amplified more and more because she's incredibly awesome. If not Erin, I would maybe try Z, Zanya. She just kicks ass, like building, working on new divisions of development and booking and just breaking into an area where the one like us, that there was no one like us in the company, actually. I'll definitely try her. I think those two would be my main recommendations, I would say. Uh, that I, I would, I, there are just people that I would love to listen an episode, uh, an episode of. And uh, yeah, I think I'll leave it that. We're going to try, definitely. Yeah. And, um, I'll send a message yeah. to Aaron. <laughs> yeah, we're just going to spam her. Like, yeah, I should be on the show. We're going to use a snippet like where you say, Aaron's awesome, and we're going to keep it on repeat. Like, Aaron, you have, to, you have to come now. Listen to Pedro. <laughs> cool. So thank you on this very hot day in Amsterdam. Cherish those days. But Dutch people always complain about the weather. It's either too cold or too warm. Yeah. So, I, I love when it's warm because when you go out, there are literally people watering the bridges. That's my favorite thing about this country. I find it the, I find it the funniest thing ever. It's like it just makes my day every time I see it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It has a whole different story, but I, I think it's 
when you first notice it's like okay it's like isn't there a water problem in the world like, why are we watering the bridges like, yeah they're just pumping it from the canal and it's going to back go back in the canal so yeah. it's uh it's really funny <laughs> cool so uh, thank you for uh taking your time out of the day and uh, i will definitely speak to you soon and uh, take care say hi uh, at home and uh, well yeah maybe to next time yeah awesome talk to you the next time and uh thanks for the space